Podcast Guy takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. I learned a new word today, and I'm going to use it here. Listening jeopards you. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guy's Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Red is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as who is the weakest of Ranger's pupils and why is it Hunter obviously no one doubted it? Will Cat ever get revenge on Black for stabbing her? And how many hearths does it take to stop an infernal invasion? <laughs> yeah, then we can just like fill in a punchline here later, you know, one of those like one, two, whoo, three, or whatever. Oh, like from the Trick Serial commercial? Yeah, exactly. Only heroes get to have the torch handed to them. Villains must take it from their predecessor's corpse. Red Empress Militia, first of her name. Can I do that thing where we don't talk about the chapter, but talk about the epigraph instead? Please. So heroes could have the torch handed to them, and villains take it from their predecessor's corpse. Great. Mm-hmm. But Catherine, in so many ways... Well, I don't know who the previous squire was necessarily. The previous real squire was Black. I don't know if there's been any interim little squirelings, but who cares? But Catherine doesn't really take the torch from Black's corpse until much later, when she stabs him. And she's got something of a torch now and continues to torch up throughout the series. And I realize that in most of those cases, she's pretty literally taking it from her own corpse. Like, her, when Black stabs her and she goes into her dream and kills herself to get her powers, when she fights Billy for the first time and uses her dead self to continue her powers. And torches a, torches a city while doing so. Oh, yeah, that's the torch right there. So, you know, Catherine, new spin on an old trick. So Catherine's torch is goblin fire, which she takes from her own corpse. Got it. And I think we all know yeah. what that metaphor stands for, like what it means, so we can just move on. Move on to an interesting chapter. Catherine wakes up after not all that much sleep because, you know, demons will do that to you. And things are pretty chill right now, all things considered, and only all things considered, because the horrors have not yet arrived. So they're preparing, and they're hosting a guest. Archer is here. They chat for a while, they go wake up Hunter, who has a fun little nickname we'll get to, and then Catherine starts worrying about whether she can unlock an aspect that is burgeoning, if you will. Yeah, it's a it's a chapter that brings together a few threads and creates a couple more. It's a it's a transition chapter, which kind of makes sense given that Kat's in the middle of a pretty major transition herself. Uh but it it's it's good stuff. We get a lot of characterization for one of the best characters in the story easily uh you know we start we start figuring out who archer is here which is always a fun time 
uh, and we just sort of drag Hunter a lot, which I'm always here for. It's a good, it's a good one. And for once, he'll be here for it too. <laughs> also, I do need to clarify. I know that I don't typically begin a chapter with a critique, like a, a critical review, like I just did. That doesn't mean other ones aren't good. That's just where I happen to land today. Where Catherine lands today is, as I said, tired. She's pretty used to seven-hour nights, which just does not seem like enough to me. But now, you know, things are tight. And she tells us that not even her name was enough to tamp down the horrible weariness in her bones. And that's just unfortunate, because, you know, some other names do. Some named don't sleep. And Kat got the short end of the stick on that one. Remember, pun on short, she's tiny. Right. She got the short end of the stick. She got the short end of the bodies. Is that... We can just say that, right? That's a that's something people say. So was that not in Shakespeare? Like The short end of the bodies. Rosencrantz, though thou art short of the bodies, thou art yeah, also right. limited of the mind. Go thou to England and get killed. That's pretty direct for Shakespeare, I would say. Kat, though, compares this weariness to uh, that that she's experienced before. She says that it's been a while since she's taken a beating this bad. Uh, since yesterday, she got beat up by some devils and then also got beat up by some archer, singular. Um, and she refers to it as a beating, which it was. They were pretty punchy, pretty throwy, pretty hitty. But then she says, the only one one referring to beating here. The only beating I could recall that topped it was my first run-in with William. And I understand that beating here just means I got beat, like I lost. Fun to me to describe getting your torso almost cut in half as a beating. I, that's not the term that is usually used when a sword is involved. It's, it's just a, it's a fun term for Kat to use. It makes it sound much lighter than what actually happened. You know, the story is full of a lot of levity, you know? True. true. As opposed to Deep-seated existential grudges. Speaking of deep-seated existential grudges, mm. Catherine feels anger at her memories of that first William encounter, and it wasn't because 25 Callowins died. That's bad. She's upset. But the biggest anger is shared between the lone swordsman for having meddled with her mind and Black for having spoken at her. She says she'd grown to like her teacher more than she'd ever thought possible, but the denial of my free will was not something I would ever just get over. Which is reasonable on the one hand, mm -hmm. for sure, but also I think speaking is one of the weaker examples of free will being suppressed, insofar as I feel as though it's a lot more akin to manually forcing someone to do a thing, unless, you know, the Empress is doing it or something where it's really layered and powerful, as opposed to a lot of the subtler or even more blatant but just ignored versions of emotional and mental manipulation we see in a lot of stories and tabletop role-playing games. Because I gotta say, the fact that in a certain famous one, as the earliest level of spell you can access, you can make someone be your friend for a while, is actually kind of super messed up. And being able to tell someone to shut up and their mouth closes does not feel like life grudge level stuff if you don't have a trauma related to it to me. It's not a good move. I just feel like it's not the egregious mental meddling that she puts it up to be. 
That's interesting. I Is it just because regardless of how it works, the only place that we see speaking used is to control only physical actions? Is that is that the line for you? I think it's that it's to control physical actions and in a pretty bounded way most of the time. Ordering someone to kneel and causing them to kneel doesn't feel too substantively different to me than saying kneel and having the two guards come out and push them to their knees. And in fact, it's better for their knees. Interesting. I I find speaking to be on the same level as other things you're, you've mentioned here, because it, in, for instance, role-playing games, since that's the example you, you know, used the most, there's usually some kind of defense built into them, some kind of way to resist having your mind affected. Speaking, the only defense is, I don't know, already occupying a similar or higher level on the hierarchy of how much reality thinks your story deserves to be told. So for most people, you don't have any defense against speaking. When speaking happens, it you do the thing. And it's, I don't know, may, I, under, I do hear where you're coming from, that it is a almost like a physical force versus changing your mind. But either way, your free will is being usurped, right? I think what it may be for me is that agency is denied you, but the independent realm of the mind is not violated. It is merely a forced action rather than a forced perspective, so to speak. Merely, relatively, of course. Don't force people to do things. So for you, speaking falls into the awful realm, but the same kind of realm as like Avatar The Last Airbender, where it's you are physically forced to do something, gross abuse of power, but doesn't cross a line that exists for you where it's not affecting thoughts or personality or emotion. I think so, yes. Okay. I, I think that's a reasonable stance to take, a reasonable line to draw. I think that... M- I think that my categories, I think the line in my categories is farther than yours or shorter than yours, whichever way means that I think this is almost as bad. I think I agree that this may not be as bad, but I think it's still in the same tier as mental manipulation. It's like a, this would be like a 1B to the mental manipulations 1A rather than a tier 1, tier 2 of crime, I guess. Well, how interesting. And. Yeah. Nifty. You know what else is interesting and nifty and terrible? Oh, what? Refuge. <laughs> Fair. Can I do that thing where I look at one word and make a whole thing about it? Please do. Catherine's account goes, The internal politics of Refuge were opaque to me, and everyone else for that matter. The one undeniable fact was that Ranger, formerly one of the Calamities, ruled the city. Now, maybe my memory is a bit off here, but in my recollection, Refuge is just a bunch of abused children in a forest with an evil ancient woman there to encourage them to be mean to each other. Normally, I would say, yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. However, since we are getting pedantic about a noun used to describe the settlement... I think being actually specific about what it is is important so we can arrive somewhere. There's more to it than what you've described because there's a support structure, there's other people there, there's, you know, various 
things in place to get things done. But yeah, a city is, I think, a stretch. If if she had said town, you might get away with it, or you know, settlement for sure. City feels like a big word for what Rangers got going on over there. I'll accept your pedantry, but it, the thing is, it's just a group of people. I can't even have like diplomatic relations, can it? So apparently, refuge is a dwarven protectorate, and my re- in... what? What? Like I did not remember this in any way because in my mind refuge is pretty well autonomous and autocratic i guess we might as well put that in there too but a dwarven protect why is it associated with the dwarves did is that ranger's method of guaranteeing nobody will get uppity and try to do something to refuge because they forgot who she is like is this is this just a convenience thing for her because people don't won't mess with the dwarves but they might forget and mess with her that's I can't I can't imagine any other situation other than it'd be annoying if people came after me for her to do something okay. like this. Let's uh, flight a fancy here. Okay. Ranger is one of the most powerful individual forces in Colernia. Mm-hmm. She's she's one of the independent forces. Even militia is part of a whole system and not individually powerful in the same direct sense right uh nessie ranger these are the kinds of people but there is at least one force a polity in fact that can at least make her run and we've seen it come after her the golden bloom and the emerald swords right and Catherine goes on to say in the very same sentence no in the very next sentence, I would have thought an independent city ruled by one of elven blood would have drawn the Golden Bloom's attention, but that did not seem to be the case. Would it be that Ranger kind of effectively, through a convenient legal fiction, provides an excuse for the elves not to get involved outside the Bloom, which they're disinclined to do, while remaining total independence? Because what are the dwarves going to do? Like, this is Ranger. Yeah, maybe, but I think there's two sides to that coin that is, that are both weird to me. One, I don't feel like the Emerald Swords would hesitate to make the dwarves angry, because why would they? Oh, yeah. And two, I why would the dwarves risk being put into the awkward political position to need to be mad at the Golden Bloom? Which they have to know is what they're doing by being politically tied to Ranger. I just don't. I don't see the the benefit that this provides Ranger in regard to the Golden Bloom, and I don't see why the Kingdom Under went for this. Like what what their benefit of this is aside from maybe the prestige. Actually, hold on. Okay, I think. Is Golden... that the film with David Bowie? Yes, I think the Golden Bloom has to be assumed to not factor in because it is so far removed from the normal politics of Colernia. I think if we try to figure out how the Golden Bloom factors into this political relationship, we don't get anywhere. Does that make sense to you? I'm down. Okay. Perhaps what's going on here is Ranger is taking advantage of the Kingdom Under to for a convenience thing. There's no way she needs their help, but as a convenience thing, maybe to for some supplies, maybe so that she isn't 
she needs a pl- she needs somebody to interact with to supply refuge and the kingdom under is good at that she can't be involved with anybody on the surface on the surface because one most of them wouldn't want to and two what happens if she aligns herself with proser and then brace and proser at war that gets awkward ditto with every other place and then she doesn't want to be tied to praise because independence so there's that and perhaps what the dwarves are getting out of this and this is raw speculation maybe there's an a tunnel or an entrance to the kingdom under near refuge and they're pretty cool with having one of the most individually powerful people on the surface of colernia camped over it i just i can't see what else the kingdom under benefits how else the kingdom under benefits here of course who knows what the political situation the kingdom sure. under is because yeah, oh, I, mean, yeah. I mean yeah she's associated is she associated with the kingdom under actually uh probably not she's associated with like one faction probably and that's an you know that's the weight that and maybe that's the case the faction just gets a little prestige boost by being associated with ranger and that's good enough for them and ranger likes the idea that the rest of the surface thinks that she's got the backing of the entire kingdom under you know is it is it a double bluff and the thing is being associated with ranger is a big deal if i ever met someone associated with her i would be fascinated at their stories oh yeah so i think in short this is a big shrug and lots of interesting possibilities and a lot of potentially cool stories spiraling out of this political relationship here but we don't know what's going on <laughs> Um, but Ranger sent Archer, of course, uh, to fetch Hunter, and so a lot of this chapter is dealing with Archer interacting with the nascent woe. Um, and the <laughs> Cat walks into Archer and Apprentice chatting about uh, the Fae, but uh, <laughs> there's a description here where uh, he's sitting in an armchair and talking with, and I quote, an interested-looking apprentice. And all I gotta say there is, I bet things are uh, things are starting off. We're, you know, we know where this goes. Arcadia. Yes. Prosser. Uh huh. The Greater North Prosser area. Don't worry about who's there. Mm-hmm. Arcadia Two, Twilight Zone. Yep, Arcadia Two, Twilight Zone, as we always refer to it. They don't both go underground to the deep, dark, dark deep. No. But. Yeah, those are about the places. Uh, and a boat. Yeah, a boat. And yeah, I guess I guess that pretty much is it. Nice job. I, you know, I've read a few things in my time. So some characters are characterized a little differently early on. Masego definitely has some social graces he may later grow out of, which admittedly is something academics just do anyway. Have you ever been to a university? Be careful. And, and we've talked about maybe that's a development as he grows more into his current and next name, so we're going to be paying attention to that. But Archer, of course, never gets a new name because the only person she could really progress into is like a ranger or something. And Ranger lives forever and totally doesn't coward out because she's a loser and then later get killed by Cat. I'm kidding, that happens. Spoilers. But Archer is herself. Catherine walks in early in the morning, Indrani and Masego are chatting. And Archer sips at a cup. Catherine glances at the contents, noting she was already on hard liquor. It's our girl! Really, Cat Cat responds in shock and dismay at this, but we, I mean, honestly, what's happening is Cat's taking notes, right? Like, it says, noting she was already on hard liquor, not like, 
huh, she's on hard liquor, but rather, oh, you can be on hard liquor already. I'll make a note of that. I mean, it's noon in Ashore. Which is... Uh, Indrani is very good. I Have we said that already? She's the best? Like, she's amazing? Love her? I just like that the saying she goes with is, it, it's noon in Ashore, rather than a later hour. Because <laughs> where is- I come from, it's, it's five o'clock somewhere. Well, I mean... Noon is late enough, I guess. <laughs> and also, important to note, she was just wrong about that, too. Which, obviously, she knows that. It's so good. It's really fun to be wrong in front of people. Try it out sometime. Archer is a bit skeptical of Z's when he has to correct her. And Cat uh, jumps in to defend. Uh, he has a thing about being exact. And then Archer kind of moves on and... Uh, Comments that the people raised by calamities tend to pick up quirks. It's a cute bonding moment. There's three of them in here. You know, you've got Apprentice, you've got Archer, you've got Squire. They're all the people raised by calamities. They've got their quirks. It's just a nice moment of create, starting to create the community that they become. Here's our, here's our touchstone. Here's our, here's our shared trauma. <laughs> you know, let's let's bond over this. And you know, Catherine will eventually join that group. But she hasn't been raised by Calamity yet. Thankfully, she hasn't grown up too much. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a short joke. Yes. Okay. So, they're going to go and try to get Hunter. And Archer mocks him a bit. He's got all the little jingly bells in his hair. Even gives him a nickname, Tinkles. And says it's really opposed to what he is. Because... There's a problem adorning your hair with jingly things if you're supposed to go around quiet like some hunter he is. And Catherine, completely insensitive to her own traumas from the previous days, says he's a regular devil with the spear. I'll say that for the man. And she knows better. People just got killed, Catherine. The devils are here. Yep. Definitely, yeah. Find a better word, Catherine. Come on. We're better than this now. Standards have changed, and we're sensitive. Fortunately, it's political correctness. It's just respect. Right. Fortunately, Archer is there to shrug and say, you know, uh, dismiss what Cat has to say about how dangerous Hunter is. With no one who studied under the Lady of the Lake would be allowed to leave refuge if they couldn't take care of themselves. But then she goes on to just absolutely drag Hunter by saying he's still the weakest of her pupils by far. Not just a I could take him or. You know, a couple of us could take him, but just he's the weakest by far. Keeping in mind that among the ranger's pupils, there is, for instance, somebody's whole somebody whose whole thing is just making potions. So, <laughs> come on, Hunter, get it together, man. Those poor kids. So they go in to wake up <clears throat> Tinkles, uh, as Arthur insists on calling him, and he's comatose because these has locked him into perpetual sleep until his love true love kisses him or oh no until z's pokes him um and he wakes up starts thrashing and archer says stop making a fool of yourself and i feel like there's some subtext there like there's a, a an implied second half of that sentence which is and let me do it instead because after she says stop making a fool of yourself she spends the rest of the conversation, and also the conversation before that, just absolutely dragging this guy. Just 
He's bad at fighting. He's the weakest. He goes, you know, do what I say. I'm in charge. You don't, you know, you got yourself into this mess. I'm here now. I, you know, I'll beat you down if I need to. <laughs> it's just this entire conversation is stop embarrassing yourself, but I'm going to embarrass you. If I may quote Homer's Undertale, get dunked on. And he does. Archer moves to unbind him, by which I mean slice his binds, because apparently we don't preserve materials around here. Mm-hmm. And Catherine clicks her tongue against the roof of her mouth as a, hey, pause, I'm disapproving, don't do that. And she spends a heartbeat surprised at the typically pricey gesture coming from her. She asks, when had I picked that up? And I think this is very cool. Apparently, tongue roof mouth clicks are a pricey thing. And also, I kind of like the phrasing of this as a gesture. I think it's flat out wrong if you go technical. Yeah. It works as a gesture. Just a little click to indicate a stance. That's funny that you say it's flat out wrong if you go technical. I think the opposite. I think the the way that it's often used means that it isn't that's not how it's often used but if you pull out a dictionary for gesture i'm sure that you're going to get something like i don't know an action to indicate meaning or something which i guess this probably is i don't know if if it loses gesture by being sound based but it is a fun word for this regardless either way either way you're looking at it well since i've always wanted to give a valedictorian speech at uh, sorry since I've always wanted to give a poorly written valedictorian speech at a high school graduation, a gesture. <clears throat> Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines gesture as one: a movement, usually of the body or limbs, that expresses or emphasizes an idea, sentiment, or attitude. I say this does not count because it's not the movement that expresses; it's the sound. Two. The use of motions of the limbs or body as a means of expression. Same argument. Mm-hmm. Three. Something said or done by way of formality or courtesy as a symbol or token or for its effect on the attitudes of others. Which feels closest, but I'm going to say no. No, that's meaning, because... That's a, that's a gesture like a gesture of goodwill, not a thing you do. Exactly. So, because one dictionary disagrees with your definition, that's how words work. Because language is real and defined. Hey, I have a question, actually. Those definitions, did I, did I mishear, or were the three things that were mentioned were limbs and, or two things, were limbs and body? Or did it mention head? Limbs and body. That's wild to me. You could gesture with your head. That's like a normal use of the word to like... And the head's famously not part of the body. I just assume body here meant like torso given it says limbs as limbs and or whatever limbs or body also here's an archaic use of the word gesture definition four carriage or bearing which actually i'm kind of here for oh yeah i've seen that yeah, okay yeah I've, I've seen that used that way before also for people who made it this far jeopard means jeopardize so use it it's fun any other weird definitions or words we want to just toss onto this while we're here Hoi polloi comes from Greek. I think everybody knows that. I mean, look at it. It's the most Greek-looking two words that you can imagine. It's got O-I twice. The opposite of hoi polloi is hoi allegoi. Oh, that's good. So here's a fun thing about refuge. We talked about the geopolitical space it finds itself in, or rather the geopolitical space that Ranger put it into. Or at least claims it's put into. I still don't think it's anything real. Fair. Uh, Archer is mad at John Hunter, 
Because Refuge is going to have to pay reparations to the tower. Wait, that is something real. Yeah, this is really interesting. I love all the like international politics about Refuge we're getting in this chapter. All, all like the the context here, but Refuge is going to have to pay rep. Are you telling me that a that somebody from the tower is going to roll up on Refuge and be like, "Hey, Ranger, you owe us money now," or that Ranger is just going to pay in advance so that that doesn't? That is wild to me. To be fair. I imagine that in Praise, being a messenger is a pretty rough thing because shooting the messenger is a cultural norm. And so mm-hmm. sending a messenger to Ranger to ask for that, you know, that's that's very much what they're for in this case. Oh, sure. I'm not really concerned about the messenger. It's just a, <laughs> just a weird thing to imagine, pre- like Militia saying, all right, get together the envoy to head to Refuge to ask for money because one of Ranger's students helped out a rebellion in Callow. There's just a lot going on there. On the one hand, it feels like you gotta, but on the other hand, can you really do anything other than just, Ranger, can can you please... It would just be nice if your kids didn't assist rebellions in our territory. I I know... Well, just if you have time, okay? (laughs) If you get around to it, could you send us some money? Just for, you know, optics. Next time you're in the crowd of the dead, snatch something valuable. So there's some back and forth between the characters here. And then we get another interesting bit of information about the relationship between Refuge and Tower. And this one, Tower, just no article apparently. And this one is even more interesting than the reparations, if you ask me, because it says a lot of things that aren't just, eh, we got to do, we got to worry about international optics. Archer asks Hunter, what did Lady Ranger say about the Empire? And Hunter's response is to quote her and say, here there be monsters, leave it alone. What? Ranger has told her students to leave Prace alone. Is she, is, it is rare to me, or it feels like it would be rare to me for Ranger to say, don't go here, don't do this. She just, that's, that's, that's really hands-on for her. Why is Prace protected in this way, or rather not protected, why is Prace given special status in this way. Do you think it's to protect her students? Because that seems odd. You know, don't go over there. Black will kill you. Is it to protect Black? Don't go over there. You might have a story because you're my, you know, you're under my tutelage where you have a chance to beat a calamity. Is it just a non-interference? Is it tie into everything else that's been going on? Oh, we don't want to get in the way of Prace because I don't want Prace being over here because it's inconvenient i don't know there's a it feels like there's something here and it's very interesting to me i've got to lean towards the black answer myself because which which he's there i have narrowed down to something involving black because i think he's the only special part of praise as far Mm -hmm. as ranger is concerned really Agreed. agreed and i think it's about not creating trouble for him whether or not it's existential because you know ranger's boy toy has a fun little project he's working on and for all of her failings i think she doesn't actively want to mess it up so she throws down a oh and hey squad of people who've got a shot at that don't go to praise you don't get to ask why and i don't care to explain see that's that's weird to the, the problem with that is that is saying that ranger is going to be an outside influence on what Black is doing, and that doesn't seem to line up with her. Like, I know Hunter accuses her of 
sentimentality here and that she's making decisions that don't line up with her normal, uh, I don't know, principles. But it seems weird that she would say, oh, we don't want to mess with Black because he's doing... Ranger's the kind of person who you would think would say, yeah, mess with Black if you want. If he can't handle you, then that's on him. That says something about him and that, you know, that that is a a negative in his book and, and you know in his tally rather than something i need to be concerned about like i want to know whether he could have handled this feels like it's more in line with ranger's character so th- that's what's so weird about this is there's every layer every way you look at why she would say this kind of peels back the ranger mythos that even we have not just what's going on in the story and tells us something about hi sue the person it's just it's a it's a cool we learned a lot about ranger and refuge in this chapter and when you are reading this story for the first time you don't realize it (laughs) and we also learn a fair bit about hunter and his tribal origins oh no yeah he's boy art archer makes fun of him for his tattoos and he tries to defend them by saying they're tribal which is always going to be concerning and then we find out that Archer responds with, lots of tribes in the Vale's merchant quarter, are there? I've had tea with your parents, John. It, oh boy. There's just, there's a lot going, Archer is just a mess. Uh, Ranger's pupils tend to be pretty interesting characters, and then there's Hunter, who's just an absolute dingus. I look forward to seeing him continue to be comic relief for the rest of the series. Me too. How many chapters are left? 600 or so? Uh, <laughs> sure. Well, yep. We'll shave off 100 just for fun. Yeah. So we'll see him for those 600. Well, actually, I'm sorry. The spoilers are going to place and we know what's going to happen to Hunter because, well, Archer says it best. He's to stand judgment before the lady. Oof. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, spoilers will be commonplace, but be ready. I'm about to lay one down. Hunter is not going to last long. It because be, of the lady wink yeah it would be uh with where this story is going and the knowledge of how the story works in practical guide if you read this chapter and came away thinking i bet hunter's going to be a long-lasting character then <laughs> that's kind of on you <laughs> do you know what is long-lasting oh what's that Catherine and her quirks oh like the quirks that come from being raised by a calamity oh very good Catherine. It's kind of trying to figure out where everything stands because there's a demon coming. And she says, he'll be staying in Marchford then. To which Archer replies, anybody tell you you're not great at subtlety, love? And the apprentice, traitor that he is, says, arguably, that's her trademark. That and setting things on fire. He's got her pint. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would probably describe what he just said as incisive. Well, that's why he's going to become, why he's going to graduate to a new name later. The Incisor. Incisiver. The, I'm sorry, the Incisiver? The Incisiver. Cool. Uh, so there's a demon around, and Hunter learns that right now. What? And his instant response is to be aghast, reasonable, and to assume that Cat summoned it. I I think that is hilarious. He doesn't know Kat at all, aside from the fact that she's the evil, the villain of the story right now. And so he just assumes there's a demon around. Eh, must have been Squire. <laughs> I think that's very funny. Like the, the As the audience here, who has 
who knows Cat, this is absurd to contemplate. But for him, it's just the automatic assumption. And speaking of assumptions... Oh? The, uh, Archer admits that uh, she doesn't think she could kill a demon. And this doesn't have anything to do with her skill, obviously. But rather, that she's maybe not a hero, as Cat assumed. In fact, Cat says, you're a villain, I'd assumed otherwise. Archer says not all roles are so clear-cut, which is, you know, cool. We, I, This is maybe the first confirmation we get that roles can kind of walk the line a little bit, uh, not including transitional names. And it's also where Cat learns that because <laughs> she does not think that that's particularly helpful since her response to that is, well, that explains everything. It's just a, a, a cute little Archer saying, no, I'm not actually a hero. And Cat learning a bit about names and also Archer. She's a special girl is what I'm saying. A special girl with some special linguistic quirks. Yeah. Cat uh, says that if you're still in the city and you're going to help with the demon, we'll meet up and we'll have a briefing. And Archer, uh, a briefing, how very formal. Tell you what, love. And she, she re- uses this love, I don't know, affectation or quirk of her speech a few times in this chapter and that disappears eventually throughout the story which is very reasonable people like vocal like speech what's the word i want people's vocabulary quirks change especially over the kind of time span that the story takes place in i'm just wondering when we lose this one because it's cute it's fun you know what else is fun about her what else and is fun she about doesn't her? Drop. she uh she does catch Catherine's eye I mean, According to Catherine, she was pretty. That much was obvious now that her face was visible. Delicate features and beautiful eyes, not to mention she seemed to be hiding away very healthy curves under that mail. Maybe a year ago I would have taken her up on it, but things had changed since then. And you know what? They'll change again. Because if I can read from much later in the chapter, regarding Catherine's current paramour, I still wasn't in love with her. And to be honest, I didn't know if I'd ever be. Which is just a lovely thing to say about someone. I think Indrani's getting in. You think so? I mean, maybe. Hard to say at this point in this story. Okay. She flirts with two people in this chapter. One's Kat and one's Masego. Obviously, there's only one she could end up with. <laughs> oh, man. Have I... I don't know if I've said this yet. I really like Archer. I think you did. We can just cut this part out. All right. I mean, if you insist. You know what I love? What do you love? Censuses. Which is to say, the next thing is about a census, so I had to say that. Actually, the last census I had a lot of trouble with, because you're supposed to write about the household, and everything I saw was about like everyone in your household, but I had a roommate that I didn't know and had no way to actually contact. So I still don't know if I filled it out correctly. But Hakram did a census. So it was definitely filled out correctly. Yes. And he rolls out a beautiful map on thick leather parchment. And the map's covered in red dots. And Catherine feels bad about it because it's valuable. Because it's a map. Have you ever seen a map? Billion dollars. Go to any store. Billion. I mean, name a big company called Google. Google. Does it do maps? Uh, Explicitly, yeah. And that was just one you named off the top of your head. So clearly. Map companies are worth billions of dollars. You're right. This is why all of my money is in MapQuest stock. It's coming back. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> so, and if the map market fails, the quest market's going to rise. So mm-hmm, I'm set. True. 
That's true. Yeah, I guess if you don't have maps, you're constantly questing. So that's you kind of it's a win-win situation there. Nice, good call. Uh, I just a side note here: the map is covered in dots marking where hearths are. There are just under two thousand, which means this map is basically mostly red dots at this point. I believe. Uh, what do you think of that? <laughs> regardless, though, uh, uh, cats. Are we we're sticking with Paramore, right? That's the way to that's what we want to use because she didn't like it. Uh, Cat's Paramore enters the room and Catherine opts for like the most dramatic greeting. Like if she had said I walked up and kissed her, it'd be okay. A little weird in a military meeting, but fine. You're proving a point. You really you missed her, whatever. But she crosses the distance in two strides and then she dipped her for a kiss. I have to say, Catherine. You opted for approximately the most dramatic greeting you could <laughs> with all your officers. Like it feels like you're trying to prove some kind of point here when you do that. It's just a, it's a funny scene. This is a good time for it because since she's a little taller, kissing her like this works better when they weren't ellipses occupied on a bed or a table or once on the desk in Juniper's office when my legate had been late for a meeting and like okay bed table where i don't care on juniper's desk so rude don't do that you're like you you need to be respectful and hygienic regarding other people's things when they're not consenting parties and something like and it can totally be a fun fantasy go ahead Catherine. i don't care just respect people like Catherine, if if there's an office thing or a you know taboo level to it I know that Catherine's got an office somewhere too. There are ways on Juniper's desk. Also, the fact that she describes it as when the legate had been late for a meeting, meaning they were there and Juniper was on her way. Catherine, you're being gross. Don't be gross. Hang out with with your paramour. Be uh, what was it? Her occupied, but not on somebody else's desk. Come on. Ugh, I'm so disappointed in Catherine right now. But then they go back to talking about fireplaces. Yeah, and there's a, a neat thing here because we are talking about the boundary between what's it called, Devil Landia, probably, and uh, creation, and how hearths are a useful part of a ritual to get between the two, I guess. Uh, so we get a little bit of information first from Carl. Uh, a hearth is the magical symbol of a home. That has weight in matters of sorcery. Okay, cool. So we've got the symbol of the home. That's why Zs needed the hearths. Zs then goes on to explain, the senior mage is correct, though it goes deeper than that. A home is a boundary. Tales about vampires in the wasteland being unable to pass a threshold are largely false, but they have a source of truth to them. Hearths are metaphysical anchors. So you've got the idea here that a house, a home, is a boundary itself. It's the private and public boundary, I'm sure. And then hearths are the symbol of that, so they function as an anchor, that they are a metaphysical anchor. This is just a neat little layer to magic. And anytime we get descriptions like this, typically from Z's or his parents, I don't know why I pluralized that, from Z's or his dad, it's it's always interesting. This is a cool one. I, I like the idea of hearths being anchors and representing thresholds like that also cool they've got a piece of our vampire lore but it's mostly not true 
that's kind of fun. Like, yeah, coevolution. Do their vampires also count things? Like the most famous vampire, the Count, who is the vampire in Sesame Street who counts things. One, ah, 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 two, ah, ah, ah. He's very good. He's so good with numbers. I have been contacting Sesame Street offices for years now, trying to get him to do my taxes, but PBS is shutting me out. Classic. But there's a whole Vampire Legion, and it would be hilarious if they couldn't cross thresholds. Just line up on the border, and then, can we come in? We're, we're a diplomatic legion. We, we have gifts. They, they, there's no way that they have that, the, the counting thing. Because, you know, according to a lot of folklore, one thing you can do to deal with vampires is, like, throw rice on the ground because they get distracted and have to count all the grains of rice. There's no shot that in Black's Legion he puts a commander in place who can be stopped by somebody spilling their lunch. Also, they have to be able to cross running water. Because how else would you get into Callow? There, there's famously a river there. Unless that legion is mostly used for defending praise. Good point, actually. That would be a cool level up in like the armies you're fighting. You're fending off the legions as one thing. Yeah, you tend to win. It's home territory. But then if you cross the river, suddenly they're vampire legions. <laughs> <laughs> they're vampire. It's a vampire legion. You've got race weather to deal with oh there's the dragon legion too you know <laughs> now it's a vampire legion sparkly uh yeah but it's not like a, a thing inherent to vampires they just it's just the style they go for that would actually be very cool i'd go for it uh like creatively sure. i'm i read the twilight series but i'm just it's not vampires that get me so the legion in question is the 11th led by general lucretia the vampire good vampire name it doesn't a lot of the i was just checking because on the wiki a lot of the legions are list where they are garrisoned that one is not listed uh by the way they're uh they're the name of the legion is tenebris very good name and also obviously their garrison isn't listed because they all have to return to their coffins at night Mm, garrison location coffin But, you know, we probably shouldn't have crossed that threshold. Anyway, speaking of thresholds, Masego is getting really excited, talking about how demons are not born of creation. They do not, on a basic level, belong here. That's why they have to be summoned in the first place. And Catherine frowns. You're implying that what keeps them out of creation is essentially a threshold. And he's happy about that because it's right. But it's really fun here because this is Warlock's son. Like... The Sovereign of the Red Skies is just Thresholden. Now, Masego gets to be a Thresholder, which is the name of an Alexander Wales book I haven't read and cannot recommend because of that. I keep I've enjoyed to read the it. works he's done. Yeah, and I keep meaning to read Thresholder and just haven't gotten around to it yet. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I'm currently stuck reading an entire chapter of one of my favorite works of fiction of all time every week, and Who's got time for anything else? Anything above that? Would that happen to be Where the Red Fern Grows? Yes, I'm reading one chapter of Where the Red Fern Grows every week. So for our February patron goal, if you get us to $100 a month, we will do Where the Red Fern Grows for some reason. I guess. (laughs) Where did this come from? (laughs) And if you get us to $10,000 a month, we'll do the entire collected works of Alexander Wales. 
within a scant two years. Okay. I was worried you were going to say that we were going to do the entire collected works of who wrote Where the Red, Red Fern Grows. Wilson Rawls, and uh, I guess... We do that, too, for 10000 a month. Oh, sure. In two years. We'll, we'll read whatever you want in two years for a quarter million, but... I'll, or, Rawls no, only yeah, wrote, whatever. Wilson Rawls only wrote, wrote two novels, so I, we could very easily do that. So, yeah, hey... Throw way more money than you should at us, and we'll read and talk about where the red fern grows and Summer of the Monkeys, I guess. I don't want to read Summer of the Monkeys, now. I, I know, this is so weird. Speaking of devil, of uh, warlock, speaking of thresholds again, uh, we get a little bit of information here about the fae kind of sprinkled in alongside talking about devils. Um uh, the, the senior mage here says there are extensive records showing that devils are more sensitive to thresholds than any creature born of creation and even the fae. It's, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting little tidbit. We get a little bit of world building here, a little bit of information about uh, something that's going to be very important to the story before too long, the fae. But I just, re- I wanted to point this out just to comment on so the fae who will be very important to the story before too long here, we get you know a little bit of information about them, uh, sort of sprinkled in, talking about the devils here. And all interesting. I love the information. I love knowing more about the world, the devils, the fae, how creation works, how magic works, always interesting stuff. But I just wanted to point out this particular moment because of it, how it it is an example of the re- just really good writing in this story. I the way that things are sprinkled in is always so powerful. We're talking about how to keep devils out from eating a city or eating the kids in the city or whatever it is the skinless apes do. But it's just sort of this Can casually bleed luby maggots. Right, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's just sort of casually sprinkled in that devils are th- sensitive to thresholds. Great. Good information there. It's practical, it relates to what's going on here, it's pertinent. Um, but then there's this extra layer of they're basically even more sensitive than the fae now we have a comparison which does a couple of things it gives us that means that the devils are extremely sensitive you know it tells tells us that they're up on that upper tier of sensitivity but it does also tell us that the fae are sensitive to thresholds the this matters for the fae too it's it tells you that where this hierarchy is of devils then fae then other creatures born on then creatures born on creation rather and, you know, it's a single sentence. It's not a whole thing as far as how important it is for the Fae or creation or whatever. But we learn a lot here, and it helps contextualize stuff that we pick up later on. It's just, I, I just really like this. It's well done. It's a thing that EE does regularly. And, you know, nice job, person who's writes really good work. You wrote a good thing. EE, sometimes... Really makes the case that he should have a career as a writer. I, I, I know, I'm, I stand by it. Wow, and it that's is nifty. That's bold. I mean, it's nifty that it gives us, in addition to that, a concept of the kinds of rules that govern creation. Because creation, forgive what I'm going to say in its obviousness, and go for the reason it's worth saying. Creation follows kind of magical rules, not just raw scientific style from our perspective physics but by something being a home the hearth centers the threshold of the home thresholds are not easily transgressed 
by those out of creation, which the Fae partially are and devils further are. We have the sense of intent and subjective experience even, though communal subjective experience, governing the way things are, which of course dovetails nicely to the ruts in creation that names are. It's cool. And yet, all Catherine can get from it is, oh, you want to set up a threshold covering all of Marchford. And like, I know the threshold stuff is a bit of a revelation, but this is exactly what you asked him to do when you said, can you ward the entire place? And then he came back and said, well, thresholds ward against them. And also I'm looking at how we can have thresholds in the city. On this one, you're a bit slow on the pickup, Catherine. She's being the audience insert there. I'm sorry, but I am smarter than Catherine Foundling. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm also significantly taller than she is. True. And I have killed fewer people. And I'm proud of that. So after doing the... Uh dentist to gather all the hearths in the city onto one map uh we find out that apprentice needs only 24 hearths to create the ritual uh spread out over the city you could use more but then you'd be trading power for precision so the you know 24 is the number he arrived at for uh i think a balance there and then we get a nice little bit of information specifically from catherine here i did not think it a coincidence that the 24th hell marked the transition from demons to devils. Cool. There's a, a place where hell is suddenly a lot worse. Okay, but it's kind of interesting that demons are from the hells, given that demons aren't even from, you know, that phase of creation. Demons are weird. Demons and are weird. I, I think that hmm, what I want to say here is I agree that is interesting, Next chapter touches on demons a bit more in a in a way that I think will lend itself to this discussion about where they're from and how they interact with the where they're from a bit more. So I think I think this discussion should about how how demons interact with location maybe <laughs> can be safe for next chapter if you don't mind because we'll get a bit more context. Fine, I won't talk about demons. Let's talk about boring things like humans and numbers. Does that make oh, you okay. happy? It does. I love humans and numbers. Oh, wonderful. So, how is Catherine doing on troops? Not not great. Okay, uh, how many are there now? Like a thousand. Alright, what percentage of them are mages? I have to imagine, not not many. Okay, Masego says that to do his, you know, magic trick, he needs to have help. Specifically, he needs half a dozen mages per hearth. Now, there are 24 hearths. Six mages per hearth is 144 mages. 144 mages is over 10% of the remaining legionaries. And that doesn't reach the point of being, whoa, no, not at all possible. This is a flaw I have found in EE's writing. But it does reach a point of, wow, you're stretching it there, actually, aren't you? Yeah. I imagine that mages have taken the lightest casualties because they're not frontliners. So more mages so extracting them would probably be more of a priority right also could they have drawn on local mages like do they need legion trained mages to do this ritual no oh, the local mage population would be both suppressed by not being pricey and by the people having left for sure making everyone useful i just yeah. don't know if you could grab a couple extra people that way i mean when we're dealing with numbers as small as 144 every couple is a couple 
Right. As the famous saying goes, that was Shakespeare's scripture, I think. Yep, Shakespeare did say every couple's a couple. A couple by any other name would couple as coupley. <laughs> there it is. Uh, however, there's some risk here, because if... Well, yeah, if it fails, then devils get in. Yeah, also, we know if, this. If, one, if a single fire goes out, it fails. And it's also a catastrophic failure, because if one hearth goes out, the other 23 hearths explode. And devour everything within 30 yards at least. So what you're saying is we have a weapon. <laughs> if the devils get in, turn, turn off one fire to make 23 bombs? I mean, 30 yards radius. Mm -hmm. Let's do a little more math. This one's for a mathematician friend of ours on the Reddit. So 30 yards is 90 feet. Squared is 8,100 feet times pi. So each of them takes out 25,000 square feet. There are 23 that blow up, because I think I'm right in reading that the one is just fine, which is great. Mm -hmm. Gotta add in survivor's guilt. So we're at 585,000 square feet. Let's... Hold, hold on. I don't know. Did you... I think you may have missed a thing, on, uh, a number in your math. Okay. Just to double check, I was using a calculator, and I arrived at a hundred over a hundred thousand cubic feet cubic yards i guess per hearth 30 yard radius pi r squared is the circumference right i convert the yards to feet but even working with yards 30 squared it's 900 times pi which is we'll call it three right now it's 2700 well you're are you just doing a circle yes i was sphering okay ah i'm just doing ground area and figuring yeah. it goes up enough sure i that makes enough sense yeah i guess going 90 feet up you've you've cleared the top of buildings you're right okay cool now let me see how many feet did i say oh sorry this is 585,000 square feet which is way 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 less than a square mile it just looks like i should check it when it's so big but that's about 1 60th of a square mile Nonetheless, it's 585,000 square feet, or 195,000 square yards. Or to put that in perspective, it's, you know, 37 deciliters or something. I don't... America. That's a lot of deciliters. I, deciliter? I hardly know her. So Catherine is a little concerned about these numbers, uh, because she really cares about deciliters. So concerned, I don't really fact, care how Catherine feels. But she does clench her fingers. I really care how Catherine feels. That is, my friends, number 19. A Fibonacci 19 for us. I thought Fibonacci was 17. Yeah, but 19 is also prime. Oh, you're right. This is, this is a Fibonacci prime 19. Thank you. The famous Fibonacci primes. Yep. <laughs> so Catherine asks if they can modify the spell a bit to weaken or actually open up part of the ward. And Masego says he'll need even more mages for that, which Catherine's fine with. So, whew, they are using all their mages. And Catherine references in Hakram quotes Tribulus saying, armies are like water. They take the path of least resistance. Catherine wants a killing alley where they can bleed them. And Apprentice's eyes glitter with something like savage joy. I think I can do a little better than that, actually. I'll need to run the numbers first so we can discuss it later. I think you got to appreciate it when people are able to work together and improve a plan. There are absolutely 
hierarchical structures, militaries, what have you, where an order comes from the top and that is a thing you are expected to do, and that's it. And Catherine's team has room to maneuver, and their maneuverings improve. This is beautiful. This is a creative magnum opus. This is a creative opus where all the participants are able to contribute to the real beauty of slaughter. And speaking of Ope, Catherine um, has something else she wants to discuss, which is she wants her third aspect right now so that she has a better chance in this coming fight. She's warned by Masego, oh, there's risks. If the corruption's here, it could destroy, whatever. And Catherine explains why she's willing, What she explains her thought process, which is bad and worthy of an ope. She says, I beat odds, Masego. It's what I do. It's the talent that got me this name in the first place. Her plan is to trigger her a name dream to get her third aspect early. She's warned by Masego it's a bad idea. She thinks that she can bravado and swagger her way through the fact that there's a demon of corruption nearby. And far be it for me to pass judgment on somebody else's plan. But this is the wrong plan, right? Yes. This is a really, really bad plan. Catherine is not planning a plan planfully. But don't worry. Masego is worried by this statement of... Uh, it's what I do. It's how I do. Uh, and he says, that kind of talk has me worried. And Catherine's response to that is to double down and say, our life isn't for the faint hearted. She's setting herself up for this to go bad, right? This is why the next chapter's title is, if I remember correctly, Catherine's plan parenthesis derogatory parenthesis. <laughs> yeah, that's that's about it. Yeah. it. Catherine, we, we've talked a lot about Catherine and her plans and the direction she takes them, and how she thrives in chaos. This is a point where she takes what she sees as her strength and dives into the wrong plan with it. This is, oh boy, Catherine. Oh boy. And Masego keeps trying to correct her because she is plain wrong. And he tells her, this isn't a villain's risk. Charging it without a plan and trusting your power to see you through is how heroes operate, blah, blah, blah. Catherine replies with bravado, we're facing a creature that makes a mockery of the kind of warfare we're trained in. If we don't grasp for every advantage in reach, we'll die. And not the pretty noble kind of death. Our corpses will be puppets for an abomination that'll try to spread across the surface of creation before enough people step in to kill it. And Masego, in the heat of this discussion, replies, uh, disperse it. <laughs> it's so good. He remembers the important things, which mm-hmm. are technical correctness. Exactly. I love him. So he agrees to do this. He's saying, it's reckless, I don't like the plan, but I will do it. And once he once he's, you know, is fully on board, Catherine says, I know you don't have a sword, so you can use mine. Zeev is <laughs> taken aback by this. He says, a sword? Why would I need that? And Catherine, <laughs> Catherine says, to stab me? This is unbelievably good. Turns out, Black just stabbed Catherine mostly for fun. He just wanted to stab her. You just need to touch another name to do this. With, with you know, it's just a, a physical contact thing. No stabbing necessary. And Black decided, I know what I'll do. I'll put a sword in my apprentice. <laughs> uh, it's such a good scene. Z's is just absolutely shocked. Like basically, he's described here as morbidly fascinated after the surprise. 
just a great scene adds an an a wonderful new layer to the you know the early chapter but oh it's so good i i think i choose to believe that black didn't do it just for fun though he would have but also because of the story he was trying to shape it was part of the aesthetic he was going for yeah but (laughs) at that point a knife in the shoulder or something nope Nope. just a full-on sword in the chest Masego describes him as always so melodramatic, and he's so right. So Not right. Masego being right. Black is right. Yeah. That's the way to villainy, as Catherine learns. So good. And then this is the point in the story where Catherine looks over at Coruscant and sees that she's worried, and Catherine's like, you know, I like her more and more, but I don't think I'll ever love her. You're allowed to conduct the relationships you want in the way you want. Don't get me wrong. I don't know. It's just this relationship between a subordinate and a higher up and the apparent lack of communication on the subject they've had that we've seen. I'm just with Andrani and Catherine later where neither of them are in love with each other. Cool. They're equals. Even though one's a leader, they're equals, I think. Yeah. They both and know. Yeah. yeah. They, Andrani and Catherine both know that that's sort of a... I don't know. I, I calling it a friends with benefits situation feels weird, but closer to that, they're both aware of what, what the relationship is. The one going on right now, where Catherine is officially legally a superior to her partner, and also says, "I still wasn't in love with her," and to be honest, I didn't know if I'd ever be. There's a lot going on here that's kind of a little icky. It. There are just some vibes here that make me think that if not used catatonic is somewhere in the direction thereof it it it's not a terribly mature relationship and Catherine's sure. 17 so right yeah, yeah, yeah also this is one more reason why 17 year olds should not be allowed in public positions of power or social spheres hmm. and then as things are organized Catherine gets ready she gives one last kiss turns to apprentice all right masego let's get and he already taps her with his index finger and darkness takes her wait I love it he taps her in the forehead and darkness did he just warlock did he just do the warlock trick to the bumbling conjurer to Catherine? is Catherine just dead that would actually be really funny oops and, i did the wrong magic on your head and next chapter will not give us the answer yeah, that's true. Uh, but, but we can't discuss the next chapter today because that is all the time we have for this episode. Join us next time on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Erratic as we discuss... A dream. A team. And a nice fleshy boy. That is the dream. <laughs> Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata as a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Clava Cimbalo, Late Middle Ages Music from the 16th Century by Julius H. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. 
The music is provided by the generous license of Pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash pgtee. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art. Cause us to read the collective works of that one guy who wrote the dog story. And gain access to a fair number of patron-exclusive tangents, including one on this episode if my co-host actually posts it and doesn't censor me. Just like fascist that he is. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Grey, our patron and Leash, always a claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fae Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and inspiration, the hopeful romantic, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 26, Seek.